turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. You need to turn one-handed because with the other hand, you need to pat yourself on the back that you have made it to the first section of Galatians. There's two parts to Galatians, and we have just finished part one. And if you're thinking about it, there are six chapters in Galatians, and we're halfway through the fifth one. So the second part is much shorter than the first part. But we have been going through this whole time since the beginning, where Paul has been arguing vehemently that salvation is by faith alone, that it's a gift, that, that God bestows it on people, that there, there's nothing you do to receive it, that there, there's no way that you earn it. it. It is a gift from God because there are people who are coming into these churches after Paul, Jewish Christians, he calls them the agitators in this book. Later on, he'll talk about them as the circumcision party because they're telling everyone, hey, you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. What Paul told you is true, but there are prerequisites. There are, you know, there, there's these if, ends, or buts that go along with it. And we've all seen that. Like, that is pretty normal in life, that you get the advertisement that says, come for the free oil change at Mr. Lube or whatever it is, and you come in and you find out, oh, absolutely, the oil change is free, but there's a $50 oil disposal fee. That you, or we can just pour it in your front seat if you want. If you don't want to pay it, that's fine. We'll just give it back to you. That, that, it is not unusual in our life to hear that, oh, this is a gift, and then to find out, uh, there's a catch. And Paul has been arguing vehemently that, no, absolutely not. Salvation is not correlated to behavior. God is not responding to your goodness by saving you. And he's been arguing vehemently that we can't think of God that way. We shouldn't, we cannot, we absolutely must not think of God as someone who says, like the oil change guys, come in for a free oil change. And you get there and you find out, oh, you don't qualify. Oh, you haven't done enough. Paul said that's not the way God works. And don't ever think of him that way. He doesn't do that. And so the very first argument he makes, if you remember all those weeks ago, is for his own life. He says, guys, you know me, you know what I was doing. I was killing Christians. Does that sound like someone that God comes along and like, oh, wow, that guy, he's really following me. I'm going to save him. He talks to them about their lives. He talks to them about scripture. He makes arguments out of contract law. I mean, he's just pulled out all the stops to say, absolutely not. Do not listen to these guys who tell you there are things you have to do. But we can't end the letter here. I mean, I am sure if you've been a Christian for a while, you feel the tension of this, there's nothing you can do to be saved. There's nothing you have to do to be saved. There's no changes you have to make. It's not about your behavior. As Paul said, I was doing the 180 degree wrong thing and God saved me. It is not that God responded to my goodness. I was not good. But we can't end it there because you feel that sense of, is that it, really? That it's just, we just say yes to God and it's over? I mean, I feel it. I know some of you feel it because you come and talk to me about it after the service. Like, like there, there's got to be something else in there. Well, I don't know if this is the good news or the bad news, but, but yeah, there is more. It has nothing to do with being, becoming a Christian, but it has everything to do with being a Christian. So follow along with me in chapter five. Paul's going into part two, which is sort of the, okay, so what next? Is that it? 
I, I just say yes to Jesus and, and, and we're, we're, we're done here? All my sins, everything's gone? Follow along with me. Galatians chapter five. I'm gonna read from verse 13 down through the end of the chapter, verse 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgy and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So if you remember last week, that's the last couple weeks, Paul has been talking about this idea of freedom, that God doesn't want slaves. He could have them, but that's not what he wants. He wants sons and daughters. He wants people who obey him out of love and gratitude, not because they have to. Even though, as we said, that, that often looks the same. It looks like obedience. But, but what's going on behind it is so different. And he's, he's picking that up again. Remember, he says, just like we've been talking about. Again, for them, you know, it's the last five minutes of listening to the letter being read. For us, it's the last couple weeks. Remember, he says, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Now, if you've read other letters of Paul, you have heard him use this term, the flesh. If you remember way back near the beginning, Paul talked about, I told you, the, the name of the word is stoichia in his language. It means literally marching together. He talked about how we, we used to be under the power of, of the stoicheia, the, the things that march together. And in, in their world, it, it's just the basic building blocks of anything. In, in music, stoicheia are notes. In a recipe, stoicheia are ingredients. In geometry, they're proofs. In math, they're numbers. It's whatever is just the basic thing that, that you're going to use. You're going to make music, you, you need notes. You're going to do a recipe, you need ingredients. Just a basic way that something works. And Paul said, we used to be enslaved to that. Just the way the world works. The flesh is his little shortcut term for the normal human way that the world works. The normal way that people live, the normal way that they get along, the normal way that things happen. So being a classics major, one of the podcasts I listen to is about ancient Athenian playwrights. Because, you know, I mean, what, if you're a classics major, what else are you going to listen to, right? Very, very famous Athenian playwright named Euripides. You may have even heard of him because we have, it's unusual that we have so many of his plays. His early plays, when he's a young man, oh, the people are noble and they're good. There are monsters and the king goes out to fight the monster and save his city and save his people. The, the, the leaders sacrifice themselves to protect their people. And later, 
as he gets older, there are no more monsters because the people are the monsters. And the kings aren't sacrificing themselves to save their citizens. They're sacrificing their citizens to save their power. And his plays have this gradual change over time where they become more cynical and more dark. And we know why. Because a friend of his wrote his memoirs and we have copies of it. And he tells us about what happened to his buddy Euripides. That Euripides lives in Athens during the war with Sparta and Athens being a democracy, everything gets debated. They meet periodically and debate military strategy. And this guy tells the story, he says one day, he, Euripides, the playwright, he's in this debate and he suddenly realizes that everyone is just arguing for whatever will make them the most money. They don't actually care about the city. They don't actually care about the soldiers. They don't care about any of it. They are just arguing. Like he's listening. They're using language like, oh, this is the right way to end the war and this will make the war end quicker. And he realizes that there are guys there who are arguing for things that will prolong the war because they're making money on the war and they want to keep making money. There are guys, you know, they're, they're arguing there's going to be this battle. The Spartans are coming up and they can either stop them here or here. And it's much better to stop them here. It's defensive. And they've got walls, and they've got a garrison all. And there are guys arguing, oh, no, no, we need to stop them here. And they're throwing out all the stops. And he realizes that's because they've got business interests there. They want the troops to protect their, their factories and their fields and things. They couldn't care less about how many soldiers die. They couldn't care less about whether the city prospers. That everyone, he says he realized, this guy telling the story about you know, listening to Euripides talk in a bar, actually, says he realized all of a sudden that none of these guys care one whit for the city. They don't care anything about anyone else. And you can watch it reflected in his plays as people become venal and selfish. And you don't need monsters anymore because you have people. People who are monsters. Euripides met what Paul calls the flesh. Just the normal way that things work. These guys, you know, this guy that, that, that has agriculture in this city, that he's afraid if they fight the war the way they should to win, then his fields are going to get trampled by troops going back and forth. And so he argues vehemently that they need to fight somewhere else. And he makes up all these reasons. That guy's not a terrible guy. He's not out there clubbing baby seals to death. He's not kidnapping children. There's no blood sacrifices going on. He's just a businessman. He's just an ordinary businessman who doesn't want to lose money and is quite frankly willing to sacrifice a battle in which a bunch of guys are going to die, but it's a war and they're going to die anyway, right? He's willing to sacrifice a battle to protect his business interests. That's the flesh. That's how the world works. That at the end of the day, most of us are selfish. And most of us are going to argue for what we want. And I am told this is now science. It's not just ancient Athenian playwrights. I've got a buddy who's in, into these sorts of things. He says, you know, we can, we can do MRIs on people and we can watch the activity in their brain light up. And so we know where in your brain is your emotions. We know where in your brain is your gut. We know where in your brain is like your, when you're reasoning and log, you know, trying to work out a math problem, logic through something. We know where your decision-making center is. And so what happens, we put somebody in an MRI and we're scanning and watching them and we give them one of these conundrums. Right? 
And the first thing that lights up is the emotional part of your brain. We all respond to everything initially emotionally. And what we hope happens next is the logical part of your brain lights up. That you have an emotional reaction to it, and then you logically think about it and work through it, and then the decision-making part of your brain lights up and you make a decision. Only that's not what happens. The emotional part of your brain lights up, the decision-making part of your brain lights up, and then the logical part of your brain lights up. We feel something, we decide something, and then we think about how we can justify it through logic and reason and how can I argue for basically just what I want, for my own selfishness. That, that's the way people were in the 400s BC when Euripides was realizing it. It's how it is in the 50s AD when Paul is writing this and it's still true today. This is the normal way the world works. And Paul says, not for us, not anymore. We all used to live like that. That used to be the default normal of our lives. That what was best for us, that's what we'll justify, that's what we'll argue for, that's what we'll try and get everyone to do. What's best for me? That's the way, I've got to take care of me, you've got to take care of you. That's the way things work. And Paul always, and he uses this analogy, I mean, it's not in every one of his letters, but wow, it's in most of them. He contrasts the flesh and the spirit. There is another way to live, Paul says. There is this way in which we bite and devour each other. Because you got stuff I want, and the things you want to happen are not what I want to have happen. And so I've got to stop that. I've got to push that away. And there's another way we live where Paul says we serve each other. I put your interests ahead of mine. Now, he's not going to develop that a lot here. He will in the next couple weeks. We'll go on and see. But he's just tossing it out here. He's he's opening his argument, explaining, look, there's two different ways that we should live. And look at what he says in verse 14. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this command. Now, he has spent the last four and a half chapters telling us, you don't have to keep the commands. You don't have to keep the law. I mean, he's been adamant. Do not be circumcised. Do not follow that law. Jesus will be worthless to you if you do. If you're trying to justify yourself before God, this isn't going to work well for you. And now... Now he turns right around, and what does he say? This, this is how we keep the entire law. As Christians, we absolutely keep the law, but we don't keep it to be saved. And folks, you've heard me say this before. This is not the last time you're going to hear it, but this is one of those fundamental principles in the faith. We are not good to gain God's favor. We are not good, so God will love us. We are not good, so God will forgive us. God loves us. God has forgiven us. God has shown us favor. So we're good. Both those things are still true. It's just a matter of where you put them. Am I good so God will respond to me with what I want, which is forgiveness, salvation, favor, blessing, whatever it is? Am I good to get from God? Or has God already given it to me? And so, of course, I'm good. I respond to him. He's not responding to me. He's already made all the moves. He's already done it. He's put it all out there. You are saved. It's a gift. Take it. But, of course, we respond to that. So listen to what Paul says in 16 through 18. Walk by the Spirit, 
Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. These, these two possible ways to live. One which is basically selfish, right? I'm going to do what's best for me. And one that is serving other people in love. Paul says, the flesh, verse 17, it wants what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit wants what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Or your Bible may say, so you do not do whatever you want. We're not sure whether he's saying that as a command or just a fact. But either way, we're in conflict. If you are a follower of Christ, you have a conflict inside you because you have an old normal way to live that everybody lives and, and everybody expects it. And that's the way the world works. We all look out for ourselves. We all argue for what's best for us. There's gonna be a battle. I don't want the battle to happen here. I graze my sheep there. I want the battle to happen over there where you graze your sheep. And we'll fight it out and each try and convince as many people as we can until we get what we want. And not worry about the city and the soul. That's their problem. Let them worry about that. We have that old, normal way of doing life. And we have this new way of life, Paul says, where we don't do what we want sometimes. We want things, we desire things, and we limit ourselves. Again, not to get God to approve of us. He already approves of us. We limit ourselves because God approves of us. Because God wants sons and daughters. He doesn't want slaves. Now again, the slave may obey and the son may obey, hopefully. But what goes on underneath is so different. And folks, this is not just some theological point. You know, did any of you have to do like catechisms or things as kids? You know, question, are we good so that we gain God's favor? Answer, no, we have God's favor so we are good, right? You memorize the little tagline and you check it off and you know, and you're good. Like, this is not one of those. Th this is at the core of who we are and, and what we do and how we live, what we look like to the rest of the world. If you believe, I mean, that's all Paul says you got to do. Believe that Jesus died for you and that God raised him from the dead. If you believe that, you are in. It's a gift. Take it. But, <laughs> but if you do believe that, then, wow, you are going to change. Because God's spirit is going to be prodding you. He's going to be poking you. He's going to be nudging you. He wants you to be different. There is going to be conflict in your life. If you are a follower of Christ, there is going to be conflict in your life between who you were before and who you are now. Because now all of a sudden, you have God's spirit. And God's spirit is in conflict with all that other stuff, all that selfishness, all that take care of yourself, all that, hey, you, you, you gotta do what you need to do to protect yourself. All that way of living, God's spirit's like, no. No, absolutely not. That is not how we live. We serve each other humbly. Why? Because God loves us. Because God takes care of us. Because God, Jesus is our Lord. Because that's his problem. That's what Jesus says. Don't worry about your kingdom. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. I mean, seriously, isn't that like the basis of the things we need to worry about? Food, clothing, shelter, isn't that like the bottom of any pyramid of needs out there in psychology? You need safety, you need food, you need a place to live, you need to be warm or dry or, or all these things. Jesus says, don't worry about any of that. Why? He says, I'll take care of that. 
You worry about my kingdom. I will take care of yours. We, we can live in this different way. Live by the Spirit, Paul says. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. We can live by the Spirit because Jesus has already loved us. He's already saved us. He's already given us all these things, as Paul will say in Romans, which is like Galatians on steroids. He sort of takes everything he says in Galatians and just you know, packs it out to the max. He'll say, if God has given us all these things, if God has done all of this for us in Christ, what is it you think he's going to keep from you later? Why do you think he's not going to give you everything else that you need to live the life he wants you to live? We have two ways to live between us. And the thing is, anybody, talk, talk is cheap. Anyone can say, I believe. If you come up to me and say, yes, Jeff, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe he rose from the dead. Then I'm going to say, amen, brother, welcome, you're in. Great, right? Because I can't read your heart. I don't know what's true about you. Ah, see, the thing is, you can't get away with that with God. So for the trunk or treat, as we were talking about, Christina and I did a Pokemon car. You know, Pokemon, those little animals and the kids' cartoon. So in my 3D printer, I printed up all these little Pokemon, and we put them in the back of our hatchback, and we gave kids Nerf guns, and they went hunting Pokemon. And if you hit a Pokemon, you got to keep it. But you only got to keep one because I had to have enough for everybody who was going to come in the entire two hours. So kids would get a Pokemon, like, oh, oh I want to get another. And I'd tell them, look, I, I, I get it, but come back at the end. Right? At the end of the day, I will I'll give away all of them. You can have the whole bag if you want. But I want everyone to get one first. Okay? So you just get one for now. Come back at the end. Nobody wants to wait that long. Nobody wants to wait till the end. What do they do? Two minutes later, the kid's back there. It's like, okay, I'm ready to get Pokemon. I'm like, you just got one. Look, kid, you're the only kid in a Spider-Man costume here. Okay? You should have gone with something a little, a little blank. or Like, like Spider-Man, you were just here. And he looks at me and goes, no, I wasn't. What am I going to do, right? I'm not, in, I'm not the Pope. I'm not infallible. I don't get to speak ex cathedro. I'm like, oh, you were definitely. I gave him the shoot another Pokemon, right? I mean, I'm confident that kid was lying to his teeth, but maybe not. Maybe there were two kids in Spider-Man, right? I don't know. So I'm just going to take him at his word and go, right? A minute later, another kid comes up. I'm like, you were definitely here before. And you can see it playing across his face. And then all of a sudden, he stops and he looks at me with a big smile. He goes, I lost mine. And his brother right behind him pops out and goes, oh, I lost mine too. <laughs> what am I going to do? Maybe they did. Right? I'm not going to go pawing through their candy bar with their parents standing right there. I, get another Pokemon, right? You can, we can do that to each other. None of us know who has actually said to God, yeah, yeah, I believe. I need you. I get it. <laughs> I totally get it. I need you to forgive me. And who's just saying? And we won't ever know that until the end of time. Ah, but God knows. <laughs> you don't fool God. There will be, we are told in scripture, there will be people at the end of time who stand before Jesus and Jesus like, I don't know who you are and you're not one of my followers. So see ya. Like you didn't, you didn't, you didn't want to follow me. Don't, don't follow me now. There, there are lots, lots, uh, who knows? There are definitely, Scripture says, people who claim to be followers of Christ who aren't. They don't actually believe that. They're in it for some other reason. 
That they want something else. Maybe it's pressure. Maybe it's family. Maybe they, they want the blessings. Maybe they haven't figured. They haven't got this teaching. They don't understand that, that God isn't responding to your goodness with blessing you. He's blessing you so you can be good. I don't know, but it's going to happen. Scripture says that there's no question. Do you remember in the stories about Jesus, what's the very first thing he says when he starts publicly speaking? So you, you get past all the stories of him being born and being in the desert. And when he goes out and he starts being a public teacher, do you remember the first thing he says? He tells people to do two things. Repent and believe the gospel. We've been talking this whole time about the gospel. Believe the good news. Believe the good news that, that you don't have to earn salvation. It's a gift. He is going to take care of it. If you want it, you can have it. Just, just come and get it. But the first thing he says is repent. Now, in our world, repent means to feel sorry, to shed a tear, to be sad. Right? That is not what repent means in the Bible. Because everyone is sorry when they're caught no one gets caught and is like, oh, yeah, I'm so glad I did it this way and you found me. We're all sorry. Oh, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I hide this? Why didn't I stay over here? Why didn't I wait another hour? Everyone's sorry when they get caught. And lots of people are sorry when they have done things that they know they shouldn't have done. Not enough to change, but they're sorry. I mean, imagine a boss who is told by his boss, hey, you got to cut $50,000 out of your budget next year. Right? And you're talking to this guy later, and he's like, oh, I feel so bad. I had to fire one of my guys. He's a good worker. I mean, I mean he's, got, he's got a wife and kids and everything, and, but, um, you know, but it was that or my bonus, and I'm counting on that bonus. I mean, we, we need that bonus to pay the kids' school. So, oh, I just, I just feel awful that I had to fire him. And he does. He feels awful. But he didn't repent. In the Bible, the word repent, I told you all the time, this language of the scriptures, it makes words by putting little words together. It just keeps jamming words, like sunel dukumen, right? Four little things jammed together. The word for repent is the word mind and the word change stuck together. Repent has nothing to do with your emotions. It has nothing to do with feeling bad. It has nothing to do with shedding a tear. It's your thoughts. Like Paul says to him, you foolish Galatians, literally says you unthinking Galatians. That's repentance, your mind. You change your mind, you think differently. Contrast the boss we just said with another boss you're talking to, same thing. He's like, I got told I had to cut $50,000 out of my budget. Um, so I, I had to go to my boss and, and, can't, and cut, my, cut my, my bonus. I mean, I need, <laughs> I count on that bonus to put the kids through school, but it was that or fire somebody. So, you know, I, I, had, to give, I had to give my bonus this year. That guy has repented. He thinks the same thing as the first guy. I need this bonus. But he changed how he thinks. Something happened that caused him to think differently about the situation. And because he thought differently, then he acted differently. That's what Jesus says to do. Change how you think and then believe. Believe what I am going to tell you. Believe what's going to happen. Believe that God loves you. Believe that God wants you back. You ran away from him. He wants you back. No preconditions. No promises. No prerequisites. Just come back. Oh, but brothers and sisters, <laughs> once you come back, then you've got his spirit. And he is going to be at work. 
He is not okay with the way you used to live. This is not come back and keep doing everything that you were doing. You, you probably know people like that. that. That things happen with their children and they're just like, look, just come back, come home, be safe, and then their kids do it again. And they're running. Their parents are like, yes, come back, come home. God's not saying come back and keep living the way you were living. God's saying, oh, come back. And then by my spirit, you're going to live different. This is all going to be different, God says. And do you hear the way he talks about the spirit? In verse 16, it's walk by the spirit. In verse 18, it's be led by the spirit. In verse 22, it's the fruit of the spirit. Hang on to that. We'll be back there in a second. In verse 25, it's live by the spirit, keep in step. In my Bible, keep in step by the spirit. Your Bible might say march by the spirit. It's the word soikeia. It's the same word he used to use about the things that march together. We used to march with another system. And now we march with the Spirit. And do you notice 22? The fruit of the Spirit. Now, before that, in 19, he had the acts of the flesh. And there's just this long list of things. Okay, so, so be, a, be a grammar geek with me. Acts, plural, are, plural verb, long list of things, plural list. Okay? The fruit, singular, is, singular verb, long plural list. Like commentators have noticed this since Paul first said it. It's not a mistake you could easily make. He's saying it intentionally. There are acts, things that are done, lots of them. But if you have accepted the gift that God has offered you, then you have his spirit and his spirit grows fruit, singular, not fruits. It's not that love is a fruit and joy is a fruit. If you, you picture your life as a tree, it's not as if, oh, you know, there's a lemon and there's a cherry and there's an apple and there's all these different fruit. It's not love and joy and peace and forbearance and there's all these different things. It's one big fruit. It's like an orange. An orange has a rind around it. It's got seeds inside it. It's got pulp. It's got membrane that's separated into slices. But you don't grow one of those. When, when, when you see a little orange on the tree, it's a little orange with a little rind and little pulp and little seeds and, and little slices. And as it grows, all that grows together. The rind doesn't grow and everything else stays small and there's this huge empty space. It all grows together. That's what Paul's saying. If you have his spirit, this is all these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it's all gonna grow together. Just like that orange gets bigger and bigger, and all of it gets bigger. The seeds get bigger, the rind gets bigger, the, the slices get bigger, the pulp gets bigger. It's all getting bigger in you because the Spirit is at work. And the Spirit is gonna be in conflict with all that other stuff that used to grow in you. And wow, there was a lot. There was a lot of stuff. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry. I mean, you go through the list. It's big. And we're in conflict. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've said to Jesus, yes, I believe, right, you should expect conflict in your life. That's what Paul says. You have the flesh, the old way you used to do things, now you have the spirit. Expect them to fight. That is normal. If you have all these desires that you think, oh, why do I want that when I'm a Christian? That does mean you're a Christian. It's like if you think you're crazy, then you're not. Right? Crazy people don't think they're crazy. If you have all these desires for all these things and you recognize that that is not what the Lord wants and that you need to, like, nope, nope, i got to turn away from that, you are a Christian. That's what we expect, that there will be conflict in your life. If there's no conflict, 
If you've said to Jesus, oh, yes, I believe, and yet you've continued just to walk exactly, nothing changed, you should probably be worried. Because Paul says we march, we stoicheia totally differently now. We're walking in a different way. You should expect conflict in your life between an old you and a new you. You ever watch those, you listen to a podcast, watch those shows about somebody that's been in prison for 40 years and, and, and they're released. They're pardoned or new evidence comes to light or something and they're released. And that release, it's a single day, boom, they're free. That's like salvation, boom, you're free. It's what Paul says at the end of this passage. He says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh. It's past tense, it's done, it's over, it happened. Boom, you're saved. But now we walk, present tense. We continue to walk. We continue to march. These guys that have been in prison 40 years, they get let out. It's hard. It's hard to live in freedom in the outside world when all you have known is prison. That's us. All your life, what you have known is the flesh, the normal way of living. And now you have been set free. And it's hard. You should expect it to be hard. You should expect to make mistakes. Peter will have say a similar thing, and he'll have a similar list of the, the, fruits of the, the fruit of the spirit versus the fruits of the flesh, and he'll say that you should see these things, he says, in ever-increasing measure. It's not boom, the orange just doesn't appear there on the tree. It starts small, and it grows, it, but, but, it, but it continues to grow. Ever-increasing measure, things grow. You should expect that if you were a Christian. Paul's gonna spend the next couple, the, the last two weeks we have in this book, the end of section two, he's gonna spend that talking about what does this mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it look like? You know, you can imagine people like, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, have the fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, march with the Spirit. Paul, tell me what this means. He's gonna, he's gonna take these things he said, serving each other in love, not provoking. He's gonna expand on all that. But I wanna give you one myself. So this is your free gift, it really is free. It costs you nothing, right? There's no, there's no catch. Free gift with sermon, right? If you want to live with this by the Spirit, read. Read your Bible. Like nothing, nothing else is more powerful. Jesus said when he talked about the Spirit coming, he said, the Spirit will remind you of the things that I've said. Give the Spirit something to remind you about. I'm not talking about, I mean, I, I, I spend hours in these passages, spend hours in commentary, spend hours in the original text. I'm not talking about studying it, I'm not talking about preaching it. Just read it. But before I do all this, I get up in the morning, it, it's on my phone. I've got the Bible gateway, you know? I've just got a, a, a boom, I hit the little bookmark and it pulls up today's passage for me to read. And I read it, and then I move on. You will be amazed if you read scripture regularly, and if you don't, ask someone who does. Don't just take my word for it. You will be amazed how often something happens to you in the day and you think to yourself, oh, that's just like what I read this morning. Oh, I, I read in Psalm 1 that, that people of God, that they don't, they don't hang out with mockers and they don't hang out with scoffers and, and, and they don't hang out with people who, who talk about doing evil. And I'm in that situation right now. I'm hanging out with a bunch of people who are mocking and scoffing and talking about evil. Wow, maybe I should do what scripture says and leave. You will be amazed at how often the spirit does exactly what Jesus said he would do. He reminds you. So give him something to remind you. 
Just put it, just read it. Put it in your heart and mind. You don't have to understand it. Oh, man, there's still lots of stuff I read in this I don't get. There's still lots of stuff I thought I understood, and then I get into it more, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm not right, am I? Just read it, okay? If you have a Bible reading plan, something you do, amen, blessings on you, okay? If you don't, on that table right back there as you walk out, there's a stack of them. It's called the F260 plan because you read 260 days a year, right? You read Monday through Friday. You got the weekends to catch up if you miss one. You read like two chapters a day. This is not an hour's worth of work. It didn't half an hour, it's been 10 minutes worth of work. Two chapters a day. You won't read the whole Bible, but you'll read most of it. And you'll certainly read the parts so that when Paul is saying things like, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, you're like, oh yeah, I read that, didn't I? I remember that. I know where that is. If you don't have a way that you just put scripture in your brain every day, grab one of those on your way out. Go on our website. We've got a bunch of them. Go online and Google Bible reading plans. Again, it is so, so easy these days. You, you, don't, you don't have to have any sort of crazy system. I used to, my Bible reading plan, I used to print it out and put it inside my Bible. I don't use this anymore. <laughs> I use this. Because this, this is always with me when I'm sitting in the car waiting for something. That the single most effective thing you can do to learn to walk with the Spirit is to read your Bible. Just day after day after day. Don't believe me? Try it for a month. See what happens. I guarantee you. A again, ask other people. We, we will talk as we go on, as Paul talks about the other things this means. But for right now, remember, you should expect conflict if you're a Christian because there are two ways to live. You have an old way and now you have a new way. And, and they don't like each other and they don't get along and they're not going to get along in you. And read your Bible just a little bit every day. Just put it in your heart and minds. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you. Thank you for this new way to live. Uh, thank you that you don't require us to do this before. You don't require us to live this way, that we can come to you. you. You accept us with all of our problems and all of our issues. You don't require us to change to accept us, but you absolutely change us once we have come back. You have a whole different way you want us to live, and your spirit is at work in us. Thank you. That is kind of you. It is kind of you not to leave us the way we were. It is kind of you to give us your spirit, that, that we will live differently if we know you. Thank you. Uh, Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I, I pray for all of us who, who, just like what Paul said, we have this conflict within us. There's, there's things that we just like, yeah, we know we can't do that. There's things we want. There's things our old selves, that, that, that flesh way of living, that normal selfish way. There's stuff that we want that the Spirit tells us no. And wow, there's stuff we don't want that the Spirit tells us, yeah, absolutely. Grab hold of that. Jesus, thank you. Strengthen us. Help us. As we go through these last few weeks of looking at, at well, what does it mean then that we are your followers, that you have saved us freely and by grace. We, we, do, we are not good because in order to get you to love us, oh, but now that you love us, we are definitely, definitely going to work at being good. Lord, show us. Work in us. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. But Jesus, we offer you ourselves again today. And I pray for anybody in here that, that hasn't taken you up on that offer, that, that hasn't said that, yep, that they believe this. I pray, Lord, it would make sense to them. Like they would get it. 
like, oh, yeah, I understand. I see now that they, they would believe. They would truly believe and come back to you. Scripture says you, you, yeah, you like, like the, the dad in the parable of the, the lost son, you, you run to us. Jesus, be gracious to us. Remember that we're dust. Be merciful. Remind us. We want to live for you. We pray all this in your name, Lord. Always in your name. Because we love you and we're yours. Amen. Now, let's remind ourselves, as we do every single week, God is not responding to our goodness. We are responding to God's goodness. That's what these stations on the corner remind us of. That Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. Before we knew him, we didn't commit to him and then he agreed to die for us. He died for us. Then we committed to him. So there are stations in all four corners. There's one down here just to my right that is gluten-free if you need it. I'm going to pray for us. When I'm done praying, just get up and go to any of the stations that are near you. Get the cup, get the bread, bring them back to your seats. I'll lead us and we'll take them all together. So pray with me again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you made the first move. Thank you that, that you did not wait for us to come back. And then you dealt with our problem. You dealt with our problem, and now we can come back. Thank you. We're so, so grateful, Lord. We do exactly what you told us to do. You told us when we get together to remind ourselves in this way. And so we do. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us here. That in the bread and the cup, that you would meet us. As the ancients used to say, we pray that we will feed on Christ through the bread and through the cup. And we ask it in your name, Jesus, always. We are yours. Amen.